This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. Greetings from Kansas City, Missouri, where I've spent the last 48 hours thanks to Visit KC. This is a wonderful, wonderful city. It's been a pleasure to visit. And uh, the city actually ties into two of the people that I interviewed for this episode, which I'll get into more depth about. But first is my interview with Ben Folds. You definitely know Ben Folds from his work with the Ben Folds Five, but he's also worked for decades as a prolific composer for a variety of TV and film projects. And his latest project is the book, A Dream About Lightning Bugs. It's part memoir, part inspirational tale about creativity. It's really, really worth reading. And over the course of my conversation with Ben, I brought up the fact that I was about to see him here in Kansas City. He's currently on tour at the Violent Femmes. And also I asked him about what's coming up for him. Hi, Ben. How's it going there today? I'm good. How you doing? I am doing great, and I first want to ask you about your new book. And I'm curious if this was the first time you'd been offered a book deal, or if it's something in the past that you'd turned down and this was the right time to do it. I have you know, offered a book deal. It didn't get to that stage, but it, it it has been brought up by publishers before. You know, like various, like, you know, I could write a book to describe my writing process, you know, take a song at a time, or something that involves my photography, stuff like that. But, um it just seemed to be the, the, the right time. I'd written a lot of stuff now, so I just took it by the reins. So was this the kind of thing where you'd had the outline done and you'd had some samples and then you'd had to write the rest of it? You know, um, I had a lot of what I thought would be um, moments, little parts of essays, interstitial stuff. I figured that would be the nature of the contribution of what I had written to date. We didn't have an outline for it resisted chronology for a while and then the more i wrote you know i realized look, the time for an outline a mission and and then you know then that was about six months and was it the kind yeah. of thing where you wrote on a daily basis or you just would pick yes. it up for a month or two and then put it away i did a lot of that for a while um uh, it was much more part-time for a while and then I guess it was last summer. I just took three months and I just hit it uh, every day. Uh, professional writer, go downstairs, shut the door to my office, lock myself in until I had two, three thousand words a day, um, and kept proceeding in that in that way. And that begins to really clarify things. You know, um, it's a, I mean it's it's a it's a process that I enjoy talking about that you don't need to hear all about but just like overshooting the the uh uh the, the narrative sometimes and uh redundancy and and all the things that you need to kind of get through to really get to the mission is fascinating to me and um i loved it and i, I love the process of cleaning and economizing the uh the the, the piece just within inches of being dumb you know like i really loved that about it um you, know, you begin writing like a writer you know and i see a lot of my peers do that and they 
make a book about life or about something and it is um written like a writer and and i uh didn't want to write like a writer any more than i enjoy singing like a singer if that makes any sense it absolutely does make sense and i'd imagine if you were you know for three months doing it every day that the songwriting had to go on hold oh yeah, no my songwriting's always on hold i write songs when i have to for my albums and by that time i'm you know find out that i'm really pregnant with song <laughs> but it's not something i do on a regular basis and the, and then the book was kind of like an album for me it's like okay let's get down and do this just do it and then spend all my time on it as, as a project i enjoy working that way i i don't as much like, like a photographer that's on assignment you know photograph pittsburgh i'll enjoy staying three to six months and photographing every day um I prefer that way of doing things than going, okay, well, I'm just writing songs all the time, and then, oh, I've got enough, and then make an album. That's not really my style, and, and uh, I think that's great when people do it, but I just don't keep up. I don't keep it up that way. Well, that makes a lot of sense considering that 8 and 8 project that you did with Amanda Palmer, Neil Gaiman, and, and Damien yeah. from OK Go. And has there been any offer to do any project along those lines again where you just have to write stuff and it has to come out that same day or week or, or year? Nobody makes offers, I don't think, to songwriters unless it's a musical or a movie. You know, I feel like there's not there's not that kind of music business anymore. If I make an album, it's not going to be because, you know, I have a deadline or anyone wants me to make one um, that is in business. I mean, I have an audience that I'm sure would be very happy if I would make one right now, but the business used to be much more you know, pressure you much more to do it because they had the machinery ready to go and push you through. And now I think it's like, you know, no one really does that. But I I love working quickly like I did with, especially working with Neil and Amanda uh, and Damien. I mean, they're, they're such sharp minds for making music, you know? And I trust them and uh, that was a lot of fun. And and I always try, I, I always try to make up something freestyled um, at my gigs, and sometimes I dictate this to to orchestras if I'm playing with a symphony orchestra. So I enjoy that way of creating. I think I really have to roll my sleeves up and have some space to craft. And that's what I did with with the album. Is I mean, with the, the 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 book, I treated it like an album. I was like, okay, now I am finishing and crafting these chapters. They will work together. I'll keep going over it make it something that, that does something that I want it to do. Okay. Well, the book, of course, one of the recurring themes is that you're a freelancer and you're doing things on your own terms. Related to you know your journey as a freelancer, I'm curious when in your life you realized that it was actually a blessing and not a curse to be able to be a freelancer. Well, I mean, I never really enjoyed working for other people. Um, I like the, um, with the exception of when I did some, a little bit of theater in New York. I, I, by that time, I was tired of rejection as a musician, and I was enjoying, and that was in my early 20s, mid-20s, I was enjoying the structure of having an employer. But, you know, the, the record labels in the 90s were so, they, there was so much pressure to have product that would sell out in each quarter that that pressure would be applied to the artist. 
And I think that was a good thing. I think it's very admirable how many chances you've taken over the years. You've dipped your toe into acting. I remember you had a cameo in the show Love Monkey. And looking back, is acting something you'd like to do more of in the future? I did a few things for uh, You're the Worst, which is a TV show on, um, I guess, FX channel. It was pretty funny. It got me recognized all over the place as the guy who played Ben Folds on that TV show. Very funny. Um, girl in a coffee shop, local coffee shop said, I know who you are now. You're the guy that plays Ben Fultz and you're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> My main thing is, I feel like is writing. And so a book is important to me. Um, an album is important to me. Playing the album live is like pretty close to second place as a musician, you know, first place is writer. Then second place is a performer of what I write. Anything else is just either av av advocacy for the arts, that's giving back, doing television or acting is just playing. It's like, you know, I've never played golf. It's like playing golf for me. It's just it's something to do every once in a while. It's not that important or not to me. When the opportunity comes up, I, I think, oh, that's kind of fun. But I would never really pursue that. Well, in terms of performance, I've heard a rumor, and I've never heard this substantiated, that as amazing as you are at the piano, that you're an even better drummer. Is that true? Mm. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I've played so much piano over the years now. I've certainly caught up. But I didn't study the piano like I did drums. And drums was a very formative, you know, studied, trained, disciplined thing for me. So pretty good at that um but you know dude doesn't play drums very much over the last 25 or 30 years so you know i was just playing a little bit for to show the drummer that i'm working with right now some things that i wanted to try to see him do on some of the songs and i'm like oh, i can still play <laughs> have you ever composed any songs just singing while playing the drums no i don't really write at instruments to begin with usually my um, my writing comes from melodies that I begin to think of, and then I take that process to an instrument. I don't think I've ever really even hashed it out on a drum set. I've had to use a bass guitar a lot of times because, for one reason or another, in a lot of the places I've lived, I didn't have a piano, but I've had a bass guitar uh, sitting around, so I'll just make sure that the key is right and that the chord motion seems to be what I think that it is, and I'll continue writing. I think it's the fear of pop album where people realize that you are a multi-instrumentalist. And I don't think I've ever heard a recording of you playing the guitar. Do you play the guitar or just the bass? Yeah, I play. Um, I'm a much better bassist. Um, on the album Rock in the Suburbs, I'm playing the guitar on that. And being that you've moved over the years, at this point in time, I believe you're based in Santa Monica, but is all of your gear in one place? No, it's all over the shop. <laughs> it's in storage and... In, uh, in in uh, in Nashville, and some of it's at a studio. And it's all over the place. I've got pianos loaned out to friends of mine. I've got three friends sitting with grand pianos in their living rooms for the last 10 years. I don't know if I'll ever get them back. <laughs> Is it the same way in terms of your recording studios that you have multiple spots that you can record in at any given time? Yeah, I think there's no short on recording studios and um, I like a proper studio these days. Um, so, yeah, those are around, you know. Uh, I think we know of a studio anywhere that I need to 
use uh, use a studio. I had a couple I really enjoyed out in Santa Monica. I've had a couple I enjoyed upstate New York and some places and, and you know, Avatar in, in, in New York City is is, is neat and uh, yeah, studios all over the place. Nashville's chock full of them, beautiful studios. And moving ahead a couple of weeks, I'm going to have the pleasure of seeing you live in Kansas City while I'm there on a press trip. And this upcoming tour that you have with the Violent Femmes, how did that come together? Did you know those guys before the tour was booked? It's funny you mentioned Kansas City. Jason Sudeikis has one of my pianos. <laughs> <laughs> um uh the violent films no i don't i don't know the films um i'm gonna meet them in about two days and any idea if you might come out for a song or two on stage or is that just the kind of thing that gets discussed backstage after you meet them i think you play those things by ear we shall see um it's always it's always fun it's it's um often really on tours like this you don't even really see the people that you're touring with it you wouldn't think it's like that but everyone has these schedules of press and things that they're doing and one shows up later and there's sound checks at a different time and you know i could do this tour and never meet those guys if that's what i wanted but i'm very interested to meet them and i love their love their records and the mark that they've made on pop music so i can put some of this on a chicago website do you remember the first time that you ever played live in chicago well, there was some place called like Double Door, or Red Door, or something Door. I remember playing that. Um, maybe '95. That's a pretty good memory right there. And did you ever record any of your albums or write any of your stuff in Chicago specifically? Um, no. You know, one of the one of the first spontaneous songs that I ever made on stage, where I started to realize, oh, this is the thing where I can actually you know, kind of start freestyling a song with chords and melody and everything was in Chicago. And, um, it was this waltz and it's still in my head. I still know that song years. I've never put it on an album, but it's a really pretty song. And that happened in, uh, in Chicago it included, of course, the compulsory names of everyone from Wesley Willis to Liz fair to go into the song. Wilco, etc. Wesley Willis is definitely missed. So ultimately, Another thing that I think is amazing is looking at your website, you have symphony gigs listed for next year. How far ahead are yep. things usually booked for you? Symphony Orchestra World is quite quite a ways in advance. And even at that, I think we probably book last minute for, as far as the symphonies are concerned. Um, yeah, we kind of know the arc of where we're heading a year out usually. And then enough space in there to shift gears if we want to and for me to be interested in something else and <laughs> move in another direction. But you know, the symphony gigs on the books, or we're doing those. With all that said, is the album recording process you said earlier, you know, people might want to hear that from you. You don't know when the next one's going to be happening, and you look at your book as really your latest creative endeavor. Do you think that there might be an album between now and those symphonic gigs in 2020? Um, it's possible to start working on I mean, I'm, I'm inspired to make an album at the moment. It's only that I'm touring basically in support of the book, you know, so... Um, it's hard to know, but I, I'll, I'll certainly get there. You know, I, I don't know if I would have anything by then. Um, I need to, I need to carve out the kind of time that I did, um, for the book. So in closing, Ben, any last words for the kids? The kids, uh, you know, be sure to floss, you know. Next up is my chat with William Duvall. He is the front man of Alice in Chains, but more importantly, I would say is that he has a new solo album out called One Alone. William has been really prolific as a singer and songwriter over the years. As we talk about within the interview, 
He has been in all sorts of bands in the Atlanta area, and he's still doing amazing work. I really love the One Alone album, and I had the pleasure of talking with him while he was visiting New York City as part of a press day. So uh, thanks to Jamie Roberts for making that one happen, and I really recommend William's new album. One Alone is the new record. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to this album, it's not clear if it's the kind of thing that you wrote and recorded in 10 days or if it was three years in the making. Which one was it closer to? Well, the actual recording time was uh, extremely quick um, because one session, the eight songs were recorded in one day and then the remainder of the songs were recorded in one evening session. So in terms of actual recording time, very, very quick. Uh, in terms of gestation from idea to recording to now the release, well, that was longer. That was that was longer, but that was more a question of timing. Sure. Um, and particularly timing vis-a-vis -vis what we do in Alice in Chains and that sort of thing. We were so busy for such a long time. And then between... Um, like in 2016, after the uh, Devil the Dinosaurs campaign, I might have done something like this then, but then the Giraffe Tongue Orchestra album came about. Um, that band came about, and it was just sort of like, well, let's just go with, let's go where where the ship seems to be taking me, and um, and that was really really great. Extremely proud of that record, but. Again, the windows of time are only so many, and so right. now we get to this point, and it's just like, well, this is great. This is the time. This is the time. And particularly after all the albums I've done that were so band-oriented, and, and there was, you know, very rock-oriented and very kind of getting right in your face with a right. certain kind of impact, this was really, I think, and even it was an ideal time. I'm glad it worked out this way because it turned out to be an ideal time to just get really reductive and pare everything down to one voice, one guitar, all the way through. Completely different, much more intimate experience. Total palate cleanser from all the you know rock records of the last two decades, um, and in my case, even longer than that because right. of the punk rock and everything. And, it was just a really great thing to do, I think. And I think it also allows us, a, meaning myself and any audience that, that cares, the opportunity to build from here, you know? Right. When I listen to this album, though, to me, and no artist really wants to be compared, but it sounds like Jeff Buckley meets Sabbath in the sense that it's like a singer-songwriter melodic deal, yet there's a lot of drop tea and you're using like the bottom two strings of the guitar mm -hmm. and part for rhythm, but you're also finger picking at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's metal singer songwriter in a way. And <laughs> there you go. I like it. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Like you're it. not going, well, I stand I like and I sound exactly what I sound like. I but love it. So listen to that uh, feeling and that vibe. Did you ever say this was going to be a band album? Did you ever track any of the songs or demo them as being more than just you and your guitar? Well, some of the songs on this album are actually acoustic renderings of songs that I had previously recorded with my band Comes With The Fall. Mm -hmm. And so some of them were um, perhaps written on acoustic guitar, but then 
transferred to a band format and this album one alone gets those songs back to their origin point in a way mm-hmm. um, you know and and I feel like it's sort of again like the most purely distilled version of those songs mm-hmm. in terms of what it was like when they were being written mm-hmm. for this album I would say from conception to now the you know actual release it was always intended to be a solo acoustic album for all the reasons I said before it's like let's just pare it down and let's just have this kind of experience and mm-hmm. then let's see if we can build build back up from there you know so future albums I might do under my own name they might you know there, there probably will be you know more dynamic rock records involving other musicians mm-hmm. um, but this was really the, the the time and the place to do this kind of thing well, somebody who's been following you a long time, and as you alluded to before, Allison Chains is 20-ish years into your career. So you started off in the hardcore punk scene of Atlanta. Then you did sort of a poppy soul thing there in the late 80s. And then, of course, there's the Dion Ferris detour, which I do want to talk about later if you don't mind, and comes with the fall. Yeah. And, of course, Allison Chains. So you've pretty much touched on every genre imaginable. So it's hard to say, well, this is what William sounds like. This right. is what his natural sound is. But there's a lot of people from Atlanta that I can say that same thing about like somebody like Rich Ward or Butch Walker. Mm-hmm. Are those guys that you ever cross paths with? Occasionally, yeah. I mean, it's a small town in a way. Every town's a small town when you get into the music scene in a way. I mean, even Los Angeles, you run into a lot of the same folks. And New York, I'm sure it's the same. And so Atlanta, Less so. <laughs> Less so. <laughs> Atlanta, Atlanta was certainly um, one of those kind of towns where you're going you're gonna to cross paths. You know, uh, I was great friends with David Harris, David Ryan Harris. Yeah. He was in a, a, a great band from that time, Follow For Now, and uh, has now gone on to a illustrious solo career and plays with John Mayer and he he produces and writes for other people he's done all sorts of things now Um, but we were real pals back then you know the kind of like we were like four track buddies you know (laughs) like we were we were you know he he sort of showed me how to use a four track you know he was kind of one of those one of those guys that um, we would get together and I mean, you know, nobody had any money or anything. We were we were all living in the same apartments, and um, you know, it was a very small, tight community in that regard. And this was after the punk scene for right. me, so this is the post-punk era for me. Um, getting more into, oh my God, I got to make a career out of this kind of thing. You right. know what I mean? And 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 they were all struggling with that same thing. It's like, what are we gonna do? You know? So. Yeah, it was a great it was a great time and and yeah, uh, you know, it seems like a, it seems like some of us from that time, Rich Ward, Rich Walker as you mentioned, David Harris uh, in his own way and me in my own way. We've all sort of come out of that into the wider world doing a vast array of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it uh, speaks to um, the diversity of taste in music that we all, I think, always had. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, Rich Ward is a bit more into the hard rock and metal thing, but but you know, guys like David Harris and 
and and me, you know, we we listen to all kinds of things, right? And we we couldn't have imagined our our musical upbringing any other way, and uh, so that's naturally going to be reflected in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. In in one way or another, it's gonna it's gonna find its way in there. Um, we're never going to be it's never going to be a straightforward thing with us never and do you still call Atlanta your home these days I'm there these days uh, when I'm not on the road for the most part yeah I lived in LA for 10 years and that was really cool and that you know definitely played an important role uh, in my life and career but yeah I'm, I'm more or less back in Atlanta when I'm not on the road now so at this point in your career you've been touring the world and recording more of your life than you haven't mm-hmm. and I'm curious when you knew that this was going to be a career as opposed to a series of one-offs or projects when music was going to be that that you knew that you weren't going to have to temp and play in a cover band right to be able to do your own artistic endeavors right 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 I would say in terms of that sort of careerist kind of aspect it was around the time of the Dion thing mm-hmm. because that was that was such a, a a huge success in terms of pop radio and yeah Grammy nominated song yeah, yeah and and it was the first time that I had been associated with anything like that my my life prior to that was strictly underground uh, and you know, proudly so. I mean, you know, first generation hardcore and all that stuff. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? And, and like that was, we never thought about, um, not in a serious way, any sort of career. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you you want to. I wanted to be a musician from the time I was eight years old, and it was very clear to me that somehow, some way, I was going to make that happen. But if anything, I was probably very naive and and somewhat delusional in terms of what my tastes were versus what the popular tastes were right it was a huge disconnect and so you know i might have been thinking oh you know this particular song that i'm writing for neon christ i don't see why this couldn't be huge i don't see why we could you know in that time period too you had like who's do signing to warner brothers you had like you know there were these weird little things that were happening that yeah. were kind of an outgrowth of our scene and we thought, well, why couldn't we be a part? You know, like, but you're insane because it's like, well, no, they're not going to, no, it's not the same. <laughs> and then later on, you know, I'm thinking, you know, oh yeah, you know, I had this group, No Walls, you know, yes. and, and we were doing sort of a jazz, rock, world music I heard Vernon Reed was a fan. He was a huge fan yeah. and he was a really great supporter. Uh, he brought us here to New York, uh, you know, several times trying to get anyone to pay attention that he possibly could and the industry just wasn't ready but you know I'm there thinking in my delusional state of mind like oh I'll be doing duets with Edie Burkell and the Grammys like this time next year you know what I mean I'm like I'm thinking why not you know and we play every place you could play here uh you know we play the Cat Club and CVs and you know, Kenny's Castaways and Kenny's Castaways. Woody's. Wow. Remember Ron Wood had yeah. a club here. Woody's. Uh, we, we would play all this place in the course of a week, and every A and R person would come down, and they'd be like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> you know what I mean? 
but you know, again, that at that time it was like 1990, you know. So mm-hmm. it's like it's 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 pre Nirvana, it's pre it's pre everything, it's pre Seattle, all that stuff. None of that was even a thing in in terms of the popular culture. So you had the same guys who were working the Warrant record <laughs> coming down to see this kind of really eclectic sort of like really emotive biracial trio mother's finest part two you know know, 15 years later and even more esoteric (laughs) than that in some ways i mean and because again we were doing kind of what what buckley would end up doing a few years later sure you know i mean you know and so it was just a it was it was an interesting period uh, maybe if we would have, no walls would have hung on a little bit longer, things might have turned out differently. But you know, we didn't, and uh, so, and that that got me into uh, much more of a kind of uh, careerist mindset because I was like, oh my God, now we got adulthood encroaching. Right. Now we've got this is where your family starts looking at you like, okay, like, you know, what are we? <laughs> all right, what are we doing? You know, really, you're still not letting the dream die. What do we? You know, come on. Can we talk about grad school? Can we talk about maybe get a professorship somewhere, associate, whatever? And you know, um, did that uh, Dion song part in the interruption there? But did that lead to a publishing deal, and then you could focus on artistry? Well, I suppose it could have, but being 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 who I am, I went to you know the ASCAP Pop Awards and all that stuff, and just got wasted <laughs> and you know it was kind of the odd duck in the room and and uh yeah i don't know i i looked at everything that was going on in a situation like that like the ascot pop awards and i was sort of like wow man you know i can dig this you know as being cool for what it is and everything and but it was very much i thought i was careerist i had nothing on these people in la at the beverly hilton or whatever who were just working the room, man. Of they course. Were, like, you had songwriters in there, man. It was like, oh, this is the day we've been waiting for. <laughs> we've had this on our calendar for months, and I am going to network the hell out of this situation. I'm going to make sure that everybody here has my business card, my name, my phone number, my my resume, my blah, 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 blah. And I'm just coming out there like... Open bar. Wasted <laughs> with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. And we ended up... <laughs> just trolling around Hollywood acting like fucking fruitcakes and I had no I had no idea what it really meant to be careerist in a real way in a, in a way that meant anything to those people you know and I knew right then and there that I was not meant for that like I could have gone that songwriter track you know where it's like oh I'm going on a writing session with sounds like now that's the thing man you go on five writing sessions a day you know right. you shove it's like speed dating. Okay, right. yep, yep, uh-huh, yeah, second verse. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, bye. See you. Yeah. And you go on to the next thing. I can't do that, man. That ain't me. It's not me. So I didn't get a publishing deal. I didn't go the songwriter route. I didn't do any of that. I took all the money that I made from the unsung <laughs> and learned how to make records. So I was like, you know, I, I you know, I got I'm living in this apartment, little five points. There's a studio right across the parking lot, right across down the alley there, and it's a really nice 16 track. They got a really one of those beautiful Studer 16 track machines, like mm-hmm. the state of the art Studer 16. I feel like they kind of, I feel like multi track recording with tape kind of sort of peaked at the Studer 16 track. That's just me. Not a lot of people feel that way, but 
you know, because you have obviously 24 tracks and you have like, you have slaving those machines off of one another to get 48 and right. more tracks and right. all that stuff. I feel like in terms of pure audio, the Studer 16 track is arguably the peak. And they had a Studer 16 track here at this place called Casino Recording. And Clay Harper, who's kind of a restaurateur slash real estate guy, he, he owned the place. He used to rent it out. It was really cheap for what it was. I was like, you know what? That's where I'm going. That's what I'm doing. And Madfly came out of me trying yeah, to learn yes. how to make records out of Casino Studio using all the dough that I made. It was like, you know, people were like, you should do this, you should do that, you should buy, you know, you should invest in real estate, you buy a house, you should do blah, 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 blah. You should go to LA, you should move there, you should become a songwritery guy, you should. I did none of that. None of that. I made Madfly Records instead and learned how I wanted records to sound and how to make them sound like I wanted to sound. So it sounds like, if I can project here, You've got this incredible solo album. You're touring with a band that is playing arenas and festivals and stadiums around the world that's still in top form. And you're one of those people who, I guess, had to have 20 to 30 years of kind of being screwed over or going the tough road to get to this point instead of peaking when you're in your 20s. So do you find that now life is, you are where you're supposed to be? I think so. Overall, I think so. You can always what if yourself to death, but I, 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 it's like, what is the point? It's not like I'm gonna, you know, turn back time and do all that stuff. And, you know, if I had peaked, as you say, back then, not only would I have been a fucking lunatic, <laughs> you know, and probably <laughs> very well dead by now. I mean, but I, I, it just, I wouldn't have learned everything I just wouldn't have learned everything. I wouldn't have learned anything about how to be a person, you know, how to be a real functioning human being in the world. I wouldn't have learned anything about how to make the records I wanted and needed to make because I would have always had somebody to deal with all of that. Mm -hmm. I would have learned almost nothing about the business because again, I would have just had, oh, the so-and-so takes care of that, and so-and-so takes care of that, and oh, they, you know, I just sort of, I get a check and, you know, or a deposit, and they just sort of give me what they think I should have, and right. I'm, I'm okay with that, and it's, it seems to be plenty, and okay, you know. Like, I would have learned nothing about how the apparatus itself works. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I feel like all of that, uh, has been just of immeasurable value. Um, And particularly now that the whole paradigm has shifted Mm -hmm. in terms of not only how people consume music, but how the artists are compensated for it, or in in many cases not compensated for it. And so in some ways, I feel like I was part of the spearheading of the new paradigm because it's like well in no in in the in the madfly days even i was like advocating oh artist ownership of your masters and all you know like that was when i got hip to like oh wow like there these are assets and oh this is a whole like 
this is not just I'm looking for a father figure to be my manager and I'm looking for a record label to be my mother and we just we just we just sign whatever and we just we get on with it and we right. hope for the best you know and it's like no this is like you can be the pilot of all of this you can be steering the ship of all of this and there's real consequences if you don't mm-hmm. you know and it was sort of like okay and so you know the second Madfly album was a distribution deal with with Joan Jett's label you know Blackheart yeah with Blackheart yeah. through Mercury and it was sort of like I insisted that it be that and you know what I'm saying it was just a, it was a it was a beginning of a different mindset it was a beginning of a of a different pathway and a different learning curve and then comes the fall like I put out all those records myself mm-hmm. didn't even want to deal with a distribution deal with anybody and you know now I got this catalog that I sort of manage on top of everything else new that I put out and in that time period that we're talking about, mm-hmm. the whole thing shifted. The whole business shifted. Everything, Spotify and everything, everything yes. went. Yeah, well, file sharing. I mean, Madfly predates the file sharing. It predates Napster. Mm-hmm. And then comes the fall was coming into play right as that stuff was becoming a thing. Napster and all that. Sure. And then of course you've got social media soon after that, and then you've got streaming after that. And you got so it's this whole sort of wave after wave coming in to shift the entire dynamic of the business and the monetary flow of the business. Right. And it's like, wow, okay, and now I'm sitting on this whole catalog and it's like the laws have not caught up with the technology yet. Right. Eventually they will. And you know, so it's an interesting time. And for me in particular, it's been interesting to observe all of this and to operate in the midst of all of it. Um, But again, to answer your original question, it's like, yeah, I feel really good about where I am right now because it's like, I don't think any of this would have been possible had I, you know, peaked in the (laughs) early 90s or something, you know, none of it would have been possible. Had you had the first single on the first album, had the hit, and then the rest of your life focused on that one hit. It would have been downhill from there. Sure. I think it would have been downhill from there. You know? Yeah. I really do. So in closing, any last words for the kids? Oh, for the kids? Buy my record. Buy my record. (laughs) Buy my record. Buy my record. Um, No. (laughs) Um, You know, look, I mean, you mean musicians, aspiring musicians? Sure. You know, because the kids, it's like, look, the kids are going to do what the kids are going to do. I don't even know what the hell you're doing. (laughs) Stay in school. Go to bed. I don't know. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, the kids who are like me, well, there's nothing I can tell them because they're going to do what the hell they're going to (laughs) do. No matter what I say. (laughs) That's how I was. That's how I was. Nobody could tell me anything, you know. Good luck. (laughs) Last but not least is my chat with Selena De La Renta, one of the standout stars of MLW, an independent wrestling company, but it can be watched around the world on weekly television. Selena is kind of hateable on the screen, but that's how you know that she's really doing her job. She showed a more humble and everyday person kind of side of herself within this phone interview, which we taped last month. And 
I think it's interesting to see how far she's come professionally. As she talks about uh, in the interview, she has educational aspirations still, but she learned a lot of what she learned from managing a McDonald's. I hope you enjoy that interview. Anybody who watches MLW knows that you were one of the fastest, youngest rising stars in wrestling. But I'm curious when you knew that this was going to be a career and not just, you know, going from gig to gig in the wrestling world. I decided it was going to be a career pretty much when I started. I, I had decided and I was determined to make it, but I didn't know if it was going to work. Because when I started, I was a manager at McDonald's and I was making maybe 300 bucks a week, maybe 400 if a manager makes a little bit more, but, you know. And I was using that money to try and invest in wrestling. Silly as that sounds, uh, all the money I had was for wrestling, for my clothes, and I would sometimes starve. And I really, really wanted to do this. But I would say a year and a half in the business, I was able to quit my job and just do it as a, a permanent thing. And I was a wrestler at the time. I wasn't even on MLW. And of course, coming from McDonald's, uh, <laughs> being such a fitness-oriented <laughs> person, did, when did you learn about good eating habits and you know keeping a healthy diet? Uh, this year. <laughs> I did not learn how to eat at McDonald's. I promise you that. I would say uh, this past year I got a coach and she's helped me a lot with my eating habits because I, I originally just ate whatever I wanted. And then I would say this past year I've been trying to take more care of myself. And I started losing weight, but it was because I was eating very little amounts of food. And that my coach was like, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. If you want abs, you have to cook, you have to make your food. And well, that's how I, I've been doing it. She gave me a list of stuff and yeah, I fixed my eating habits. And a lot of people point out, which I did in the first sentence of speaking to you, that you are such a young rising star and MJF is another person that's on the roster that's in his early 20s that's internationally known and and popular and all that does it bother you that people so frequently reference your age uh, it doesn't bother me I feel like um if I if I am upfront about it and I say hey I'm 22 people immediately think I, I know less and I always like to leave that for the end I actually have done I had business meetings where people have no idea my age. And then at the very end, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm 22. And they're like, no, you're not. Yeah, I, I swear. Oh, oh, for real. And it's always a shocker. So I, I don't, it doesn't really bother me that it's a shock. It's more flattering because that just means that I'm a little more advanced. And I always felt like I was, but now I have affirmation that I am. Right. So MLW is growing in popularity just as you are. When you came into the company, how does it compare to where it is now? Well, when uh, when MLW started, it was, we drew maybe 300 people. And it was in Orlando. It was like a small thing. And the first show was called One Shot. And it was like, it was called One Shot because it was supposed to be a one-time thing. But then it, it, it turned into something way cooler like everybody wanted it to come back and everybody's like oh my god you guys have to run again and i think that's why court was like all right let's let's try this again and just every show that we had just had twice the amount of people and it just kept growing and growing and i say within like the first four or five months of us running we already had television 
So we, the fact that we were able to get that um, just made us realize that we might just end up blowing up. And you, I believe, have the first pay-per-view coming up later this year, and you recently announced a partnership with Noah. Are all these opportunities coming to you organically, or does Court just have this big plan of massive goals that he's been working towards? Well, I don't believe that everything we've had is because it's come to us. I know that Court Bauer works super hard, and he's always doing meetings and trying to see how he can make this company better. So if I were to say... If MLW is just growing because people are coming to us, um, I would say it's 50-50. Because, yes, um, while we do work hard and Court's always trying to get our, our brand out there and talking to different people, yeah, because we are popping, there's a bunch of uh, companies that are trying to reach out and see how they can work with us. So I would say 50-50 on that one. So Promociones Dorado? It keeps growing and growing as well. So I think the theme here is that everything is growing. How does the future look for your group? The future looks pretty bright because we have a golden ticket. And with that golden ticket, I can get a shot at the World Heavyweight Championship whenever I want. So, I mean, that's pretty great that we have that. And my guys just continue to get better. And you know how I do if you're not necessarily fit for my group because you can't keep up then you get cut. So my group is always going to shine. Let's say that. Absolutely. And you guys were just in New York City taping a show last week, a couple of weeks of television and all that. How far in the future are you guys booked? Is that something that you can share? Like, for example, do you know where the next three or four months of TV are booked? Or is it really one taping at a time? So we, depends on the month, but we run, um, this is, I don't think this is private because you can just look this up online and find out. Uh, we run, once a month or maybe twice and during that time we film i would say a month of television sometimes a little bit more for safety but I, it's mainly just four weeks did you picture that you yourself were going to be such a high profile person when you came into mlw did you know that the, you were going to be in this position no i did not see that coming at all like uh, when i joined mlw i just i was under the impression that i was going to be an interviewer and I'd say like a week before MLW started, I got a phone call from Alex Greenfield, who's one of the producers. And he was like, oh, hi, Selena. We have a um, change of plans. Do you think they can bring a suit? I was like, a suit? I did not own a suit. And I was like, I don't know about this. But yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll buy it. And to be honest, when I when I did when I did that and bought super expensive suits, I barely could afford them. So I was like, man, I'm really like spending a lot more money than in wrestling than what I'm making. And I was I was having a rough time. But because I did that, I guess that they were able to see a different aspect of me. And since I since I entered. Like everybody was like, oh my God, you, you are a businesswoman. And the, the minute I walked in, everybody just had to say something about it. So I just feel like it was very fitting. And I, I, taking a leap of faith just really worked for me. Is there anything that you want people to know about you in general besides the fact that you are one of the focal points of MLW? Or is just life outside of wrestling your private life and that's that? Um, I don't mind sharing my private life because there's not much to share. Like, um... I am very, I would say I'm a career person. Majority of the things that I do are for work. 
Um, besides MLW and my current career, I'm working on my plan B. I go to college and I am doing a bachelor's in dramatic arts with the intention of continuing to study and doing a master's and a PhD in sexology. It's pretty amazing that you're able to do all that while staying in great shape. So it sounds like you don't sleep a lot. I don't. I really don't sleep much. But I just know that if you work hard, it pays off. And in my mind, maybe this isn't right, but I need to work hard, sacrifice my 20s, I would say, those 10 years of my life. And then after I'm 30, I can just chill and be like, hey, guys, I worked so hard. And now look what I'm doing. It's called chilling. Bring back to the original question. Do the people that you used to work with at McDonald's know how far you've come? Or have you made a clean break from all those people? No, I, I talk to a few of them still. Uh, my boss, well, he's not my boss anymore, but my boss at the time, he still like uh, likes all of my pictures and my and and my manager as well. She she messaged me the other day because I posted not the other day, it was like a month ago. I posted a picture of me at McDonald's winning a speak a speaker, and I thought it was the greatest thing because I I didn't have a speaker or any electronics, so that was like I won that because I was like the best customer service employee of the week or something and I was so proud and I had I had that achievement and my face was just glowing and then I took another picture at MLW and I'm like started from the bottom now we're here and um, a couple of the people at McDonald's like still message me and we go out and talk so yeah I don't forget them. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.